Can He Do That is sponsored by Bowl and Branch. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. Promo code Can He Do That. There's a widely held belief about infrastructure. As a political issue, people think that it's boring and wonky, dry and kind of complicated. And sometimes that can definitely be true. But sometimes infrastructure policy sounds like this. So, so I don't want to sound right. hostile, sir. I have sir, five minutes. But, but, Madam Secretary, I have five minutes. I just want to see if, so there is, if there is some sort of help that we can expect in this region because these two tunnels are 108 years old. And, and they, they collapse. The entire country is going to pay a price the for local, this. So I'm just wondering if you Jersey. support any kind of help for these tunnels. New York because and I've New Jersey there. can come up with larger than zero or five well, right now, That is Elaine Chow, the U.S. Secretary of Transportation. She's at a recent hearing on Capitol Hill about the state of our nation's infrastructure. And she's arguing with a congressman from New Jersey about a rail tunnel that would connect his state to New York City. And it's a tunnel that, incidentally, everyone agrees is super important and completely necessary to prevent a literal transportation catastrophe. This is going to be a heated discussion. No, this is not going to be a heated discussion. I just want to know what I bring back to my district. It's going to take money from every other transit project in America. Okay. That's just a fact. Yeah, it's, it's kind of entertaining to listen to a shouting match between a congressman and a member of the president's cabinet. But it's also a pretty amazing reflection of how President Trump's stance on infrastructure has gotten a lot more complicated since the election. Because remember, from the beginning of the presidential campaign, Trump talked constantly about all of America's urgent infrastructure needs. But we have to rebuild our roads, our bridges, our tunnels, our schools, our hospitals. He's talked about working to bring America's roads and bridges and tunnels on par with the best of what he's seen in Europe and Asia. I mean, our country's like a third world country. You go over to Qatar and you go over to some of these places in the Middle East, you go to China, you see the airports, you see the bridges. They have bridges that are so incredible, you've never seen anything like it. And he's promised to fix our transit systems too. They have railroad trains that go 350 miles an hour. And we have things that go chug, 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 like from 100 years ago. And yet, we had this hearing about a month ago where Trump's Secretary of Transportation is arguing with members of Congress over funding for the exact same kind of project that he vowed to support during the campaign. I'm Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. This week, we're looking at infrastructure and some of the ways that President Trump could be changing how our country gets major projects done. Earlier this year, Trump unveiled his big $1.5 trillion infrastructure proposal. And since then, it hasn't gone anywhere. Republicans in Congress aren't interested in raising taxes to pay for new projects. And Democrats, they don't want to make cuts to other programs to free up money in the federal budget. And things looked even more bleak in the last few weeks. Trump publicly acknowledged that any kind of big investment package is going to have to wait until after the midterm elections in the fall. And then DJ Gribben, Trump's infrastructure advisor, announced that he's quitting the White House. So Trump's big infrastructure plan seems like it's stalled, at least for now. And yet, despite that, Donald Trump is actually having a significant effect on the state of the nation's roads, bridges, tunnels, and public transit projects. To understand why these changes 
have such high stakes, we need to go back to Elaine Chow and to this New York, New Jersey tunnel, this seemingly innocuous thing that turned into a huge conflict on Capitol Hill. And to tell that story, we're going to go to Mike DeBonis, a Congress reporter for The Post. Around February, he was reporting on the omnibus, the huge catch-all spending bill that gets passed by Congress every year. The idea that any one transportation project was going to be an issue in this huge trillion-dollar-plus spending bill for the president of the United States was, to say the least, a surprise. And it definitely wasn't what Mike was anticipating when he started talking with his congressional sources about what was going to cause drama in that year's spending bill. I'm asking them, hey, what's bubbling up here? We're about a month out from a deadline. What are the things that are coming up and and could possibly be a problem down the road? And uh, one or two people started saying, hey, Gateway. And I'm like, Gateway? What What is Gateway? The Gateway Tunnel Project would build a new train tunnel underneath the Hudson River to connect New Jersey and New York. The existing pair of tunnels is about 100 years old. They've reached full daily capacity, and they can't handle any more trains. They've been deteriorating rapidly for years. And things only got worse when they were damaged by Hurricane Sandy. One more big storm can make it so unsafe that the whole thing would need to be shut down and taken completely out of commission, which would be devastating. There's hundreds of thousands of commuters a day who uh, rely on on these tunnels. Um, It's basically would be an economic uh, apocalypse, and I don't think that that's overseeing things too much. So this is a huge uh, project that's been on the White House's radar, certainly going back to the Obama administration where you had the Secretary of Transportation, Anthony Fox, uh, sort of work out a handshake deal to, to try and get this thing funded. And a big part of that deal was about who would pay for the tunnel, which is estimated to cost around $20 billion. Usually with these kinds of mega infrastructure projects, the federal government and then the city or the state, they'll split the cost in some way. And a lot of times it'll end up being like an 80-20 split where the federal government takes on a lot more of it. But in 2015, Obama, who was near the end of his term, he struck a deal with the lawmakers in New Jersey and New York and basically said, we're going to split the cost of this tunnel 50-50. Great news for tens of thousands of commuters. An agreement has finally been reached to build two new rail tunnels under the Hudson River. CBS2 political reporter Marsh Kramer says the feds have agreed to foot half the bill. The quarrels are apparently over. Governors Andrew Cuomo and Chris Christie are now saying all aboard for what is regarded as one of the most important infrastructure projects in the nation. And when Trump enters office, New York and New Jersey lawmakers are all like, great. President Trump will definitely follow through on this deal. He's going to fast track the project and help pay for it. Because this is a guy from New York who likes to build things and who knows the value of a project like this. And last fall, there was this big meeting to make sure that everybody was on the same page in terms of how the project was going to get executed and paid for. They had a big White House summit meeting where you had the president invited into the Oval Office, his transportation secretary and his infrastructure team, along with Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, Chris Christie, who was governor of New Jersey at the time. And then there were a bunch of members of Congress, Republicans and Democrats from New York and New Jersey. And there were people like Chuck Schumer, the Senate majority leader. 
he's been particularly outspoken in supporting the Gateway Tunnel. And he kind of sees this project as a place where he can strike some common ground with President Trump. So all these people show up to the White House. A huge assemblage of great political clout. And they all went into this into the Oval Office and they all came out saying, everyone's on board. We're, this is going to be great. We're all going to move together, you know, work together and get this huge project done. It will shock you to hear that it was not all great. So uh, fast forward to about a month, six weeks ago, maybe. And that's when you have folks on the Hill starting to actually write the spending bills that'll set how the government's money is going to be spent for the next year. And that's when this whole gateway thing bubbles up again. That happened to be around the time that the Reverend Billy Graham, the evangelist, had died. And on February 28th, his casket was lying in honor at the U.S. Capitol. And there was a receiving ceremony there that had the president and the speaker and all sorts of dignitaries Line, you know, sit down and pay their respects to Billy Graham. President Trump is there, and so is Speaker of the House Paul Ryan. They're basically in the green room, ready to go into the Capitol Rotunda to pay their respects to Billy Graham. And according to Mike's reporting, Trump goes over to Paul Ryan and he makes an ultimatum. He's like, if you put money in this omnibus, specifically earmarked for the Gateway Tunnel, I will veto this whole trillion-dollar spending bill, the whole thing. That's an amazing uh, threat for a president to make over a project like this because for a number of reasons. Number one, these are the sorts of things that get hashed out on a legislative level. It's rare for the president to micromanage something as small and as simple as a tunnel project. And then it was also bizarre because people were like, this? Of all the things worth fighting over in this trillion-dollar spending bill, you're going to threaten a veto over this? And that brings us back to that heated congressional hearing with Elaine Chao, the transportation secretary. Because Mike reports this story about how Trump personally stepped in to derail the Gateway Project. And the Congress people who thought that the funding was a done deal, they were totally baffled. So when Elaine Chow turns up for what was supposed to be a very straightforward hearing about the administration's proposed transportation budget, it doesn't go exactly as she planned. Listening back to that hearing is really illuminating because there's so much there about why Trump made this threat and how his views on infrastructure have shifted since he first took office. So at this hearing, it's Representative Sean Maloney's turn to speak. He's a Democrat from New York, and he starts off by citing Mike's story about Trump's veto threat. So the Washington Post reported, uh, Secretary Chow, that President Trump recently personally requested that Speaker Ryan block the federal funding uh, for the Gateway Project in the omnibus spending package. Um, what can you tell us about that? Is that true? I read it in the newspapers, just like you did. Right. My question was, is it true? It probably is. Because and can you tell us why the president is seeking to block funding? I think you need to funding. ask the White House on that. But I have already Secretary said... Secretary Chow, excuse me. I will be more than glad to explain it if you let me. You have three Democrats from New York and New Jersey who really went after Chow, basically said, hey, what's the deal here? And Elaine Chow gave it right back to them as good as they gave it to her, and if not more so. And all of them basically said, hey... 
We were all at this great meeting in September in the Oval Office. We all thought this was going great, and you guys were on board, and we're on board, and everybody was happy, and we left, and everyone felt great. I'd just like to know what happened. We left there so enthused. You were enthused. The president was enthused. All of a sudden, this is a project that is uh, not such a priority, especially when there were 52 million people in this region, and it generates about 20% of the economy in this region. So can you give me uh, some, something that I could be enthusiastic about? Because I really am very disappointed in the present. We go there, and we thought we had something good going. And she said, in this very polite, dignified, but absolutely intense way that she does, she said, we were polite. We were very polite. We were cordial. There was no commitment at all. Well, I didn't uh, say the you attendees were not, I didn't of say that you were meeting. Not cordial or polite, and I didn't say there was no agreement. I said there were, everybody left there very enthusiastically. The attendees of that meeting exited that meeting and spun the results of that meeting as they wanted the meeting to be. And the the members of Congress were just absolutely stunned by this. They they're just like, "What do you mean? There's no agreement." That we we had a great meeting. You guys know what a huge project this is and how important it was. There was no commitment from that meeting. As I mentioned, it was a cordial, so are you respectful, me now that there's no courteous meeting. If I may proceed, tunnel? because there's been so much misinformation about this, I'm so pleased to be given this opportunity to clarify. If we could just pause for a second. I just love that line. But she has this point, which is kind of true. There is no formal agreement for a 50-50 funding split between the federal government and New York and New Jersey. It was an informal agreement with no legally binding contracts. But still, that doesn't totally explain why the president chooses this issue for a veto threat. It didn't happen over so many other issues in this bill that the, the president probably doesn't like, including border wall funding, you know, probably his biggest domestic priority. And he never issued a veto threat. Uh, over that. So the idea that he was going to veto this bill over this tunnel project was uh, mystifying to a lot of people, but not terribly mystifying when you looked at the politics of it. And the politics of it are fairly straightforward. Trump is not a huge fan of Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer is the senator from New York. Chuck Schumer cares deeply about the Gateway Tunnel Project. And therefore, the Gateway Tunnel Project is a really good place to hit him where it hurts. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, who he saw as really the locus of opposition in Congress, as the guy who was really standing in the way of a lot of things with his agenda. Things like immigration and DACA, the border wall, and all of these presidential appointees and bureaucrats that are waiting for confirmation hearings because of Senate Democrats and because of Chuck Schumer. But there's something else here in Elaine Chow's answers, like an indication of a broader change in infrastructure policy. And it's not just about personal vendettas. It's about how the president weighs the value of projects around the country. Because since the election, Trump's rhetoric on infrastructure has evolved. He talks less about new gleaming train systems 
and more about rehabilitating rural roads. And this idea that cities and urban centers are kind of hogging the transportation resources of the country, you can hear this again and again during Chow's hearing. My question was, is the president of the United States personally intervening with the speaker to kill this project? The president, yes. The president is concerned about the viability of this project and the fact that New York and New Jersey have no skin in the game. Ah. They need to step up and bear their fair share. They are two of the richest states in the country. If they absorb all these funds, there will be no other funds for the rest of the country. That sentiment, the idea that these urban projects are taking away money from other parts of the country, that seems to be informing a lot of the decision-making around infrastructure policy. And you can see this reflected in things that the Trump administration is already doing. Can He Do That is sponsored by Bowl & Branch. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. Go to bowlandbranch.com today for $50 off your first set of sheets. That's B-O-L-L and branch.com. Promo code, can he do that? Mike Laris covers transportation policy for The Post. And he's reported on this shift from urban to rural, which is apparent in things like the omnibus spending bill. That one has not been theoretical. That's actual money that, that, that Congress has passed. And it has sort of showed the different priorities of the different sort of people that are involved in this debate. And in this most recent annual spending bill, there was a little noticed but very significant change in spending for transportation. It had to do with these things called TIGER grants. It's a transportation funding program that started in the Obama era and previously, less than 25% of transportation funding through that program was designated for rural projects. But this year, under Trump, that number went up to 64% of funds designated for small rural communities. That's been a theme from the Trump administration from, from pretty early on. They had repurposed even before this last spending bill or this last appropriation. They had repurposed an existing program to put more emphasis on rural communities. The Wall Street Journal crunched some numbers on this, and they concluded that, quote, of the 28 all or partly rural projects funded in the current round, more than two-thirds are in counties that voted for Mr. Trump. And that's intentional. You can hear it in Trump's own speeches. We're going to provide a $50 billion commitment to build infrastructure in rural communities, which are too often left behind. They've been forgotten. They've been forgotten. We're going to spend a lot of money on the rural communities that have not been taken care of. And these are incredible people. These are hardworking people. And they haven't been taken care of by the Democrats. I mean, I, I did think it was interesting listening to the president when he spoke in Ohio recently, saying that rural areas had been left behind and saying explicitly this was the Democrats doing. That sort of setup plays to the president's base. Because that aligns with Trump's campaign rhetoric and with his messaging as president. This idea that, like, he's there sticking up for the people in the forgotten parts of the country. At the same time, it's a setup that Democrats aren't willing to, to cede in any way, right? They, they say... 
that it's the opposite, that they're the ones that have fought for actual federal spending in rural areas to make things things better. So I, th- I think that, that that's going to continue to be something that the political conversation is going to revolve around is who's best for areas that are forgotten, you know, and that, that counts in, in rural areas, but other, you know, poor areas too. That's something that is important in, in the cities as well. I mean, it's just sort of who's got the back of, of the forgotten has been an important political theme and neither side is willing to give that up. More money for rural roads, less money for urban transit. It's one way in which concrete changes are actually happening. Changes that can be made without passing a huge trillion-dollar infrastructure package. And Mike Larris says that there are all of these other ways that Trump is trying to alter the way that this country does infrastructure. Things like tackling the permitting process and how long it takes for a big project to get federal approval. That's something that Trump brings up all the time. He even talked about it in this year's State of the Union. America is a nation of builders. We built the Empire State Building in just one year. Isn't it a disgrace that it can now take 10 years just to get a minor permit approved for the building of a simple road? It's been a theme um, Trump has seized on from very early. It plays into ideas that that the government is slow and inefficient and getting in the way of, of progress. And advocates on both sides agree. The permitting process does, in many cases, take way too long. But there's a risk of going too far and cutting out steps of the process that are intended to help stop problems that could have really bad effects on the environment or on nearby communities. And then you have the fact that the Trump administration is seeking to favor projects that are paid for, at least in part, by the private sector. Because that fits in with this argument that it's possible to do big infrastructure projects with very little money actually coming from the government. A refrain that you hear is that there's a lot of private money that's looking for places to invest. And if we just sort of line everything up in the right way, that the private sector will be able to to come in and and make a big difference. And most of all, the Trump administration wants to shift the expectations for how much money they're supposed to put up to help with these local or state infrastructure projects. I mean, in the ideal world, as far as the Trump administration is concerned, they would essentially be putting in seed funding. You know, they're they're calling for four to one, local to federal, essentially. Oh, wow, that's a a huge change. Yeah, and so that would be... um, just a sort of a, a different <laughs> different approach, right? And that means forcing states and cities to basically move heaven and earth so that they're able to pay for a larger portion of their own transportation projects. And it's working. I've seen it working. So uh, let's open it up for the uh, reporters who are here in the room as well as the reporters who are... When I'm not hosting, can he do that? I also write about transportation, and specifically public transit. And a few weeks ago, I went to a press conference that was hosted by the American Public Transportation Association. It was held in downtown D.C. They brought in the heads of all these public transit agencies from all over the country. And they were all there to talk about federal funding and to share their concerns that Trump wants to divert money away from public transit. Hi, uh, Martine Powers with The Washington Post. Um, this is a question for anybody. 
Why do you think that President Trump is proposing these dramatic cuts? Is this an, uh, an issue of his administration not adequately understanding the benefits that you all are talking about in, in your communities? Or do you think that this is an administration that's fundamentally antagonistic to public transit? And you could tell that they were frustrated. One guy in particular was Peter Rogoff, the CEO of Seattle's public transit system. And he also used to serve under Obama as the head of the Federal Transit Administration. Peter Rogoff was talking about how his transit agency is expanding and, like, building all of these new lines to help connect more communities, exactly like how Trump described. And at Sound Transit, we are busy putting the president's vision into action. We're building those gleaming new railways. We are currently constructing 18 new miles of light rail and designing 76 more miles that Puget Sound voters approved in 2016. We are, in fact, the largest transit expansion program in the country. But we, like so many of our colleagues across the country, are mystified as to why the administration's budget priorities do not match the president's vision for gleaming railways. We're here also. And he talked about how he feels like there's this disparity where rural road projects are considered projects of national importance, that they're worthy of federal funding, and that public transit and urban centers, that those projects are considered just local and undeserving of that same kind of federal support. One of the arguments that we periodically receive from certain players in the administration that these transit projects are, are viewed somehow as, quote, local projects, unquote, uh, which is something, uh, frankly, a lot of us bristle at. I think we should be funding rural roads, but I have a hard time understanding how roads that might serve 3,000 or 300 or 30 residents, all worthy investments, are not considered local projects and are considered worthy of federal funds while these major transit expansions and international uh, economic hubs are not. But Peter Rogoff also goes on to say that because of this historic shortage of federal funding, they've had to take extra steps to make it possible to expand their system. And they've done it without much federal contribution at all. Like for this project, they've kept most of the federal contribution down to just 16 percent. Our region really stepped up and voted uh, for uh, a substantial tax increase to generate substantial local funds to get these projects built. I can't say that other transit agencies um, across the nation uh, can, can do uh, the kind of overmatching that we may be in a position to do. But other transit agencies around the nation are doing that. Here in D.C., the metro subway system is racked with problems. And it's in dire need of a lot of significant long-term repairs. And for years, local politicians and public transit advocates have called for the federal government to step in and kick some extra money over to Metro. Their argument is that 40 percent of all rush hour Metro riders are federal workers on their way to and from work. So the federal government has a responsibility to contribute some extra money to help keep the system going. Or at least that was the hope. But in the last year, you've seen that hope start to die. And this spring, the legislatures of D.C., Virginia, and Maryland cobbled together enough extra money to fund the capital repairs for the system into the future without any extra contributions from the federal government. They just couldn't wait around any longer. And it's not just because of Trump. Because for years before that, there has been 
dissatisfaction and dismay with the shortage of federal transportation funding to support the infrastructure needs around the country. But the longer that the country goes without a big infrastructure deal in sight, the more public agencies believe that they have to find their own way. Which, for the record, is kind of what President Trump and Elaine Chao want in the first place, particularly for transit and urban centers. They're forcing states and cities to be more innovative, to look in other places to find the cash to fix their falling bridges and crumbling roads. And Mike Laris thinks that that could be a permanent shift. You had states, when the administration first came in, that were just sort of lining up to get a chunk of this big, big federal pot. And now I think there's a realization that this big, big pot is not coming. So there's absolutely a sort of a rethink of like, well, okay, now now what? I mean, the sort of phenomenon of states thinking that there was going to be sort of a savior in Washington, people are skeptical that that's going to happen. Thanks for listening to Can He Do That from The Washington Post. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Check out previous episodes at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or find us anywhere else that you listen. Can He Do That is produced by Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Lorraine Boglio, and original music by Ted Muldoon. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels. Special thanks to Mike DeBonis and Mike Laris for help with this episode. If you like Can He Do That? You should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, Rediscovered. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.